Well, hello everyone. I'm Tony Payne. Welcome to another edition of Two Ways News. Great to have you with us here again, and great to be back in Australia again, Philip. After my travels. Yes, welcome back. I hope you get a cope with jet lag this morning. Well, if I'm even less coherent than normal, at least I have an excuse. Yes, it's a good one. What's too. your excuse? <laughs> None. <laughs> We're going to be talking this morning about the coronation of King Charles and about kings and coronations, about symbols like coronations and realities. By the time you uh, listen to this, dear listener, the coronation will have happened, presumably, uh, God willing, but we're looking at it coming up in just the next few days. And Philip, coronations are interesting things because certainly from where we sit all the way over here in Australia, with King Charles as our head of state, it seems a long way away, not just in distance, but in the meaning and importance and even necessity of such a thing. It's so different this time than 1953, which you remember so well, I'm sure. I'm sure. I I did but see her passing by. Yes. Because that was the dawning of a new age, having come through the war, having come through the Depression, having still under restrictions of foods and things like this. uh, It was the starting of a new age. It was enormous. And the build-up was enormous. This time in the Australian papers, it's only in this week, the week directly before the Saturday coronation, that the newspapers are running any articles at all. And what's the the reaction and the the build-up such as it is about? Like, what are the newspapers saying and and how are we coping with it as Australians? Well, a lot of of the build-up is, of course, the family disputes between the prince and whether... whether will, will Meghan be there? Will Harry be there? All this yes, that kind of uh, celebrity news, I suppose you'd call it. Um, and so that's, that's one of the, the big issues. But there's the question of republicanism always rumbling along in public media here and do we want a king who lives 10,000... Sorry. Do we want a king who lives 10,000 miles away? Um, I'm sure I should say that in kilometres, but uh, 16,500 is not nearly as interesting a figure. Do we want a king? What does a king mean in Australia? So there's those kind of questions. But now the media is talking about the symbols, you know, where the procession is going and who's going to be wearing what. And But it's also because Charles is intentionally, it is said, reducing the size and importance of it, making... It's a lesser deal intentionally than Elizabeth's grand coronation and with bringing in changes to it. But then there are other people, like Geoffrey Robertson wrote a piece really saying coronation's a complete waste of time, we don't need it at all. Well, because we have a king, he's the king, the coronation's not going to change anything. We don't even want him as a king for a start. But what's the point of of making a fuss and having all this symbolic investiture of him as king. Yes, and for Robertson, who's an atheist, of course, I presume he is because he's the humanist of the year, which makes him an atheist, and in one year he was the humanist of the year. He's a Republican too, um, but he's against religion being involved and he sees the coronation as really just a Church of England activity of accepting the king and well the church of england is so unimportant these days so few people go what does it matter why why should the church of england appoint the king who's already been appointed it's just a religious nonsense in other words for robertson and for others of his view it's a symbol 
a, a kind of nonsense, quaint, outdated, symbolic activity that stands for something we don't even agree with anyway. Um, but even though we have to have the thing, we have to have a monarch, that's what our constitution is, why have this symbol? It's, it's like part of the clash between what is the symbol and what is the reality. Yes, that's right. It's weddings. If we're living together, why do we need a wedding? And so it's just a, it's a, a religious hangover from another day. It's not necessary. Uh, it's just a waste of money. Um, we're already living together. Let's just proceed. But a wedding is a very important thing to do, and in a sense, a coronation's important. We're talking coronation and king. It could be inauguration and president. From my mind, it's the same thing. That is, we need a time, we need a place where we can articulate what this social relationship is, what this new relationship is. That's what weddings do. Sure, people can go and live together. I understand 80% people live together before they get married and then there are others who never get married. But what a wedding does is it spells out the nature of this relationship, for better, for worse, for... For as long as we both shall live. Yes, until death us do part. It, it actually sets out the, the framework of what we think our relationship is and will be. And now, we may not keep that, but we then know that we are guilty in not keeping it because we promised it. In and we promised it in front of everyone. It's yes. a public covenant, as it were. It's a yes. public set of promises. Everybody knows how to treat us now because we are man and wife. Oh, I met a couple the other day. I don't know if they're married or not. I don't know whether, I don't know how to be treating them as a couple. Are they a couple? Has it reached that stage yet or not? I mean, none of my business. They're just two people. But how do I relate to them? Well, a marriage is. Public declaration, yes. We are living together in a sexual relationship and you could expect to have children coming along because we are in that relationship. And we want you to treat us that as husband and wife and not come between us. It's not just about ours, but it tells other people in the congregation what they should expect in their wedding. It reminds us who are already married what we promised years ago and it teaches those who are not yet married what they'll be asked to commit to in the years ahead. So it has a very important educational process. So the words of the wedding service, the words that are promised, the, the shape of the whole ceremony and everything that happens, those words express and teach and look forward to a particular reality. There's a there's yes. a connection between the words there that are spoken and the reality that's being described, and that connection is real. It's, it's describing what is and what should be. Yes, that's right. Although the words are being terribly distorted now by Hollywood, and so every movie I've seen with weddings these days, the words are poppycock, gibberish nonsense of romantic sentimentality, and there's no promise I will. At best, it's I do. So that's rubbishing it. And then also the symbolisms and the costs are far exceeding the contracted words. And so, you know, the wedding gowns costing $10,000. Well, that's a cheap one for a celebrity wedding. Yeah, well, for a celebrity wedding, yes. But are more important than actually saying particular set of words 
it's lovely the bride looks lovely and she feels lovely in whatever she's wearing, but frankly, you don't need $10,000 to get married. In fact, people say, oh, I can't afford a marriage. Well, frankly, you can. Marriages cost almost nothing. It's the wedding ceremony, the symbolisms that people go on with, which are costing the money, not actually going before a minister and declaring your promises. It's because our culture is losing touch with what the reality is, with what the nature of a, of a good and true marriage is, that its, its symbolism and its ceremonies are becoming increasingly vacuous and strange and yes. meaningless. And words don't mean what words mean anymore, which is a terrible thing. See, the, the wedding is the one contract I think I know of where what you contract is not legally in any way binding. So I promise, as we said, for better or worse, but in fact, by law, all I'm promising is I'll stay with you and I won't get married to anybody else until I've left you for 12 months. Well, that's very different to the words I actually said. But thanks to the uh, Family Law Act of 1975 in Australia, that's all a wedding means. So... You've got a contract which has one set of words saying one thing and in a legal framework, because you're all registered as law and it's applicable in the courts, this marriage, but actually the courts and the law mean a completely different thing than what the words are saying. It's a strange contract. It's a contract now in the way that what the words now are taken to mean and the way we treat them that has kind of departed from the reality. Yes. reality of committing yourself to someone else through thick and thin, through sickness and health for the rest of your life. So we're talking about words and reality and how we tend to be uh, seeing those things part company in our culture. And we're going to come back to co the coronation in just a moment. But I know there's a story you've been dying to tell about <laughs> yes. words and reality. <laughs> yes, there's a great reality thing happening at the moment, isn't there? There, there are all these non-binary T-shirts uh, that you can buy online. Uh, I actually haven't seen many of them walking around. But What do you mean by a non-binary T-shirt? Well, they say non-binary. Some of them have non-binary with a definition of what non-binary means in an approval, in an approved fashion, like as if it's a dictionary, a dictionary definition. Others have the symbolism of male and female, but then it has all kinds of other little circles and arrows and uh, and crosses, etc., mixed up in different ways. Others are things about pronouns, you know, uh, don't use him and her, use them. Them is a singular. And they're all promoting the idea that life is non-binary. I am a them, not a girl or a boy. Yeah, they're all non-binary. So you can walk around wearing this, declaring to the world that I'm in favour of all these kind. The, the shift in in gender language away from a binary view of male and female into a kind of multifaceted gender world. Yes, or genderless world yeah. in a sense. Yes, the thing that abuses enormously is that you can buy them only in male or female fitting and size. <laughs> <laughs> they don't offer other genders when it comes to. Do you want a men's size? Do you want a men's size? size or a woman's size? Yes, okay. a men's shape and a woman's shape. You know, so the women have much shorter sleeves and the men have longer sleeves, and yeah, so reality bites back. Yes, well, it's out of touch with reality, isn't it? Words that have lost all touch with reality make 
not just a nonsense of reality, but a nonsense of words and therefore a nonsense of our thinking. Our mind, our logic is all gone. And so it's a very serious thing when you detach words from reality. Let's come back to the coronation of the king then. What words are being spoken and what realities are those words trying to describe or celebrate or put forward about the nature of kingship, for example? Well, one thing is, like marriage, sorry, we're back on that for a second, it's God who makes them together. Like, similarly, in kingship, it is God who appoints everybody. And that's whether the king knows it or not. Romans chapter 13, you know, we're to submit ourselves to all authority because God is the one who appoints all authority in this world. So the king may be an atheist, but he still is appointed by God, whether he knows it or not. And the service, well, the service is talking about God's appointment of the king. And it's only by God's appointment that there's any chance he will reign in the righteousness that is required to make government work. But one of the very first things that happens in the coronation is the Bible is placed in his hands. Of course, it's all about ceremony. You know, the Bible is God is a King James version of the Bible, which hardly anybody is really using these days like this. And there's only four copies of this Bible, and it's taken away from him as soon as the service is over and so on. But what is said about the Bible there is is wonderful and extraordinary. Our gracious King to keep your majesty ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God as the rule of life for the whole life and government of Christian princes. We present you with this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is the wisdom. Here is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. That's a terrific statement. And it's saying right up front, the very first thing that happens, in a sense, is... God's word is put in his hands by which he is to live. And then the promises and oaths he takes, he takes on the Bible. And so the place of God's word is really front and central. But yet we're not expecting him to implement them. (laughs) That's not the case. Although the words of the service go on expecting him to implement them. Uh, He's got to rule with justice and righteousness and mercy, they're terrific words for an understanding of the Bible's teaching about a king. I mean, you look at Psalm 72. It's a terrific psalm about endow, give to the king righteous judgments and justice. Because it's only from God that we get that sense of righteousness and justice, which lies at the heart of why we want government. The, the fundamental activity of government is justice and righteousness. But how do we get justice and righteousness? Where does it come from? Well, it comes from God. And without God, you really don't have that being spelt out. And so we're praying that the king will follow the Bible by ruling with justice and righteousness. That's very important to articulate for him and for us listening in to him and to know what to pray for him, as we should pray for him, and to know what to look for and expect from our monarch. The fact that some of them are no good at doing it, well, that doesn't change the hope and expectation of of our community. It's teaching us, it's articulating for us our hope and expectation 
of government. Give the king your justice, O God. This is Psalm 72, verse 1. And your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. It's a terrific psalm. Of course, it's about Israel and Israel's king, but yet it's fundamental to what a king should be and should do. Of course, it's not talking about a constitutional monarchy such as we have, let alone a titular head of state 10,000 miles away from us, but it is still articulating our right expectation for what our government should do, of which he is the titular representative at this stage. It strikes me how similar it is to Romans 13, in a way. Yes. And how the expectation of what, in that case, the emperor, the completely pagan emperor, ought to be and is, is very similar to what the Israelite king is, although in a more explicitly God-oriented sort of fashion in, in the psalm. And it's often struck me that that's kind of the way that the Old Testament structures of kingship and nationhood kind of function in the Bible. It's not a, and this is a big issue and it might divert us and we may not wish to deal with it just yet in in this particular conversation, but the Old Testament isn't a charter for kind of like a Christian reconstruction, a Christian nation, building the kingdom of God on earth, having a Christian king, imposing the law. It's, It's not so much that, but it does teach us the nature of true government and kingship that the way God has established Israel and Israel's king to rule with righteousness, to deliver the needy, it's what kings should be and should do. Yes. One of the problems is that I think the people of England think they are God's kingdom, (laughs) just like the Americans think it. I think Australians are a little spared of that that kind of hubris. Not a great credit to us that we're spared of it. We must be careful not just to read the king of Israel as the king of England or the king of Australia. I don't want to go down that kind of reconstructionist line. However, I agree with you that all that is best in what is right and just is seen in the law of Israel. And so there's that passage in Deuteronomy 4 talks about when the peoples around Israel see the people of Israel obeying the law, they will say, what a great God these people have, and how true and just are their laws. What nation ever had such laws as these? Yes, and so Israel's laws are seen to be and are taught to be the way the creator of the world has created humans to live. And so we can draw from Israel's king what is to be expected of a godly king. And I think the coronation service, in its words, do that. But in many of its symbols... Well, the pomp and splendour of it all is slightly contrary to the words that we're saying. And the changes that I see are being brought in for this particular coronation, all about the king not being served but serving, is made a nonsense of by the pomp and splendour that goes along with the thing. I mean, the ultimate king had nowhere to lay his head. But this king has more wealth and prosperity on display than you will ever see anywhere. I mean, it's just incredible, the character of kingship that we're doing now. That's part of the fun of the game. That's why people watch it on television, because it is so splendid. 
But again, you see, it's like the wedding. The $10,000 wedding dress is more important than the words she's saying, when in fact the words she's saying really matter and the dress is totally unimportant. And it's, it's like that. I mean, the orb, the gold orb is put in his hand. Uh, it's got a cross on the top of it. The scepter is put in his hand. It's got a cross on the top of it. The, key, the, the crown is put on his head. It's got a cross on it. it in each of those symbols, <laughs> it's really about living under the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, living under the execution, the assassination of the King of Kings. The one who has came not to be served but to serve. And give, give his, his life for the ransom for many. That little bit of, the, of that verse is not in the service, whereas the idea of giving his life a service is. But the real service of the Lord Jesus Christ, well, it's there because part of the service is the liturgy of the Lord's Supper. But it's not there in the the additional prayers that are being put into this service or in the character of, of service that we're talking about. You see the contrast you're talking about in the picture of what is most valuable in the world. Yes. So you, you said earlier that the Bible that's put into his hand is the most valuable thing this world affords. Yes. But, of course, he's surrounded and draped in and wearing millions of pounds worth of jewellery and gold and precious gems and the whole thing is a display of of human wealth and glory and splendour, whereas, in fact, this word is the most valuable thing and the symbolism is of a king and a leader who lays down his life for his subjects. Yes, and uh, symbolisms can be read different ways, can't it? One of the things that could be seen is that intentionally, in front of all the jewels and gold, etc., the Bible is held up as the most valuable thing, right? Mm. That could be the, the message that is supposed to be sent. I think it's lost. <laughs> of course, the other thing that Psalm 72 does in painting such a glorious picture of the rule of the son, and he's referred to as the son in the psalm, mm. uh, it points us to David's greater son. It points us to the failure, the ultimate failure of all human kings to judge and to deliver. Yes, that in the history of Israel... The greatest two kings, David and Solomon, well, David's a certain embarrassment, but he was the great king. But Solomon's a bigger embarrassment. As he gets older, he gets worse and worse and places a heavy yoke upon the people and so leads people astray. But it only gets worse from there, doesn't it? As you read, one and two kings. It's a pretty sad catalogue of failure, isn't it? Yes. It's depressing, really, is one and two kings that... You are supposed to be looking for David's son, but David's son keeps on being a dud, basically. And uh, you think, well, where is it? But it's all preparing us for great David's greater son, you know. And that's where the first Christian sermon, Peter on the day of Pentecost, takes it. Because he quotes that Psalm 110 about David speaking of the Messiah as his own Lord and God placing everything under his feet which Peter sees is fulfilled in the resurrection and ascension and the outpouring of the Spirit by the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's that wonderful climax his sermon comes to in verse it's 36, isn't it, where he says that... This Jesus whom you crucified. Yeah. When he says, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has appointed both Lord and Christ. For you actually see the king as the king by his death and resurrection not by a particular big coronation service. So in a sense, 
the coronation and the very Christian nature of this particular set of words that convey this reality, and the fact that it includes the Lord's Supper, the picture of Jesus dying for the sinfulness and failure and judgment of humanity, points us to the fact that our human governments will always fail. They'll, they'll never achieve the vision of kingship and justice and righteousness and defending the poor and needy that the scripture points out as the nature of true government. Yes. So, well, I was thinking of Psalm 146, don't put your trust in princes because they die. But of course, the great king, he died for our sins, but rose again as victorious ruler forever. And so the fulfillment of the promises of God, they all centre on the true king of kings. And of course, as the king resurrected from the dead, he's different to all kings, for they do not rise from the dead. If we're not to put our trust in princes, says Psalm 146, because they all die. And so we call out, long live the king, <laughs> but he's not going to. That's part of the the anomaly of what we're saying, long live the king. It comes from you know, the appointment of Solomon, caught in that great piece of music by Handel, about Zadok the priest and the people rejoicing and saying, long live king. We want the king to live long, but it's only the Lord Jesus, who is the true king, who lives as God promised forever as king. And brings in a kingdom of justice and righteousness that lasts forever. By his death. It's the crazy plate, isn't it? He doesn't bring it in by a big procession and a heralded wonderful... It's, it's nothing like... He comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. He comes in on a donkey to be assassinated. And yet out of that assassination, we find the true values and meanings not just of service, but of even more of righteousness and justice, of forgiveness and of mercy. And as that book by Tom Holland on Dominion points out, a whole value system that is so contrary to the world's value system of power and might and authority being exercised through cruelty. And it's just a completely different kingdom. And long live that king. Long live that king, which is what we're going to look at on the King's Birthday Convention this year. I have difficulty saying the King's Birthday because I've been saying the Queen's Birthday for so long. But we have a King's Birthday holiday here in New South Wales. I don't know whether it's all across Australia. On the second Monday in June, so that's I think the 13th of June. Sounds right. And in that afternoon, we... Uh, gathered to have a couple of sessions. My brother's going to be joining me in that one about long live the king. What does it mean to say long live the king? What, what, are, we, what are we on about government in Australia today and in the world today for that matter? We're just using the king's birthday, the king's new appointment to, to be looking at the whole issue of our relationship with the king, our relationship with the government, our relationship with the state especially at times when I think most Christians in the Western world are now feeling themselves less included, less accepted, less wanted in the state, in the government, in the society. And how do we now relate 
to a world that is shifting in its power authority structures away from us. Now, the King's Birthday Conference you're talking about, it's June the 12th, I've just looked up, not June the 13th. Monday, June the 12th. It's going to be held at Moore College here where we're recording this podcast. And if you'd like details about this, go on to um, your browser. Just Google King's Birthday Conference, Two Ways Ministries, those kinds of things. You'll see the details there. We'll put a link to uh, the conference details and how to register and so on in the show notes for this episode. And those outside of Sydney, we are live streaming it. Oh, excellent. So it's around the world here and there and live streaming. And uh, there are special rates for groups who want to come together and, and watch it together. Great way to spend a holiday Monday in New mm. South Wales or just a Monday somewhere else, or you could watch that live stream on delay as well. So catch up with the King's Birthday Conference that's coming up. It sounds like it's going to be very worthwhile. And thanks once again for being here on Two Ways News. It was a great conversation, Philip. I'm looking forward to seeing how all these ideas play out because we've kind of opened up a bunch of things in this yep. conversation, but there's a lot more to pursue. There is a lot more. So do join us for that conference. Um, And as always, if you have questions or comments or thoughts uh, about what we've talked about today, which is really about the nature of not only of government and of kingship, but of how words and reality relate to each other and the importance of words, please get in touch with us and let us know. You can email me at tonyjpayne at me.com. And Philip, it'd be good to pray as we finish off. I think you should lead us in prayer, remembering that in 1 Timothy 2, we're told, first of all, to pray for kings and rulers and those in authority that we might live that peaceful life. So why don't you lead us? I will do that. And after that prayer, just as a special treat, there might be a a particular piece of music that plays that you can enjoy. Something royal. Exactly. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you sent your son to be David's greatest son, the king who rules for all time, the king who came to his kingship through death, who gave his life as a ransom for many and rose to be the Lord and King that we serve. Father, we are very aware that our human kingships and states and governments, though they should be modelled on this kind of kingship, of seeking judgment and righteousness and deliverance, fall far short of this. And so we do pray for kings and all those in authority, that they would exercise justice and righteousness as they should. And we pray for ourselves, Father, as we submit to and relate to human authorities, authorities that often disappoint and frustrate us. Help us to submit and in right subjection to them as your appointed rulers. Obey them as we should as they, as they seek to rule according to righteousness and judgment. And help us to be patient, Father, and to trust you in all those circumstances where that doesn't happen. We thank you, Father, for your kingship and the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray it in his name. Amen. Amen.